Welcome to today's April Ask the Experts call. Now, without any further delay, I'd like to introduce today's host, David Mullman with Align Technology. David, you have the floor. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on today's Ask the Expert webinar, Power Principles for Case Selection Success with Dr. Trent Smallwood. You'll learn two CE hours for attending today's program, and you'll receive important instructions on how to obtain your CE certificate at the conclusion of the presentation. Additionally, CE hours will automatically be added to your Invisalign doctor site account. Please allow two to four weeks for CE hours to appear on your account. Please know you're able to listen to today's program via the webcast, and throughout the webinar, you'll have the opportunity to ask text questions, which our presenter will answer at the conclusion of the presentation. I apologize in advance if we're unable to answer everyone's questions since our time is limited, but we will follow up after the program to answer any outstanding text questions. Today's program will be archived in its entirety one week from today on the Education tab of, tab of your Invisalign Doctor site, where you may also access archived versions of all of our previous Ask the Expert programs anytime for CE hours. It's now my distinct pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Trent Smallwood. Dr. Trent Smallwood has been treating Invisalign patients at his Center for Contemporary Dental Concepts in Tempe, Arizona since 2003. In addition to lecturing at Invisalign courses, he teaches for other major dental manufacturers, dental laboratories, at, and, and at dental conferences nationwide. Dr. Smallwood is a past instructor of the Hornberg Group. So without further delay, I'll turn the program over to Dr. Smallwood. Dr. Smallwood, you now have the floor. David and Chris, thank you very much for the introduction. Um, I always have a pleasure doing these type of programs because they, uh, they bring a very concise and almost summarized view into the way we look at a lot of these cases. I do this a lot for restorative type cases, and I brought that same kind of element into my Invisalign cases now that I've been doing for about the last eight years and nearly a thousand cases later. It's been really an exciting process that I've gone through because I've been able to bring a lot of what I've learned in both um, uh, failures and successes of my restorative built-in porcelain into the actual movement of the teeth. And it's amazing at the end result, you're kind of looking for the same thing. And so that's when I've been able to bring a whole different view to the aligned you know, environment and community uh, with, regard, with regard to uh, my um, uh, restorative kind of background. So that's why I want to, you'll see kind of a premise in a, that's, that's based on restorative and then I'm also going to be able to talk, uh, it's going to be kind of fun today, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the combinations of Invisalign with uh, Restorative, which we'll, we'll have some fun with too. For me, really kind of how I got into Invisalign, I did get into Invisalign kicking and screaming, just to give you a little bit of history. I was uh, really of the, of the mindset that, you know, if people had malocclusion or malpositioned teeth, why would I want to really move the teeth uh, using orthodontics in some form? and certainly not a line uh, technology because I felt like these are bleaching trays. How can bleaching trays move teeth? Well, I'm here to tell you that they can actually move teeth. And with my situation, my thought was, why not just prep them straight? So for many years, that's what I would end up doing. I had a lot of great successes and failures, you know, where I was always into the idea of conservative-type dentistry. I was told in dental school that a silver-filled or amalgam-filled tooth like this one would be a baby crown, and I thought, why does it need to be? Why couldn't we be more conservative or less invasive? So it's always about the, uh, the, the idea of creating environments like this one where we could just do potentially a composite or an onlay or an inlay, something far more conservative instead of such an aggressive type of stance. In that same vein, really for me, I also struggle with the idea of veneers. And I did a lot of those early on where I would end up attempting to do a conservative veneer, and I'd end up, end up doing crowns. This is a product called Empress, which many of you are probably familiar with. <clears throat> Excuse me. And very, uh, very much the intent was to be conservative, but I ended up crowning all these teeth and only doing six because I was of the thought that, you know, anterior teeth really was six through 11. 
um, or you know the, uh, the 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 one three to the uh, two three, and and those type of that type of limited thinking would very much limit the type of end result, both from a functional and aesthetic standpoint. Then I kind of broad, broadened my horizons a little bit, and using the same Empress product, I was able to look at um, a more conservative element with regard to uh, less invasive type of preparation techniques, and then using, in this case, Invisalign to move the teeth into a better place so that I could conservatively place actual veneers on these teeth using Empress. And hopefully most of you will think or agree that this smile is far better than this one, even though they're made out of exactly the same parts, but just separated by about 10 years of knowledge and understanding. And so that's what I was able to bring into the different kind of this different type of arena with regard to Invisalign. And so now my practice still consists of a tremendous amount of restorative, uh, but it also has a very much a very strong standalone Invisalign only type part, uh, part of my practice, which if the teeth, I kind of have a rule of thumb, you know, ugly uh, crooked teeth will be end up being ugly straight teeth. So if we can make the teeth beautiful in some form, whether it's with composites, whether the teeth are beautiful anyway, they're just in the wrong position. For example, in this fellow's case, here we can just simply them into a better place overall. But again, the fundamentals are the few principles that I discuss, then um, we will at length today. They really deal with the idea of how to choose these case, uh, cases a little bit differently, and, look, and maybe with a little bit different mindset. Here, these first four or five that I mentioned here are definitely um, probably the premise of where I end up creating the success for my Invisalign and my restorative cases. I want to kind of go through those individually. One, to, to, to be able to start initially, is this concept of like arches. Now, when I talk about like arches, I'm not necessarily talking about the arch. That is very important, as you know, but it's not what I'm talking about here. What I have my hygienist typically um, most of my hygiene, um, or rather I should say my uh, Align um, Invisalign cases come through my hygiene, um, uh, basically, department. About 70-80% of them do. And it's basically from a functional standpoint. So my hygienists are taught by me to look at the idea of with whatever we're looking at with patients from here, uh, uh, whatever any new patients or existing patients, whether it's the all issues, of course, we're going to be looking at decay issues, potential abscesses, infections, but I also want them to look at like arches, and the concept of that is whether there's space over space or crowding over crowding. That's what I mean by like arches. The like arches is not pertaining to arch form. In this case, if we have a space on the top or maxillary arch and then space on the mandibular arch, then that tells me that when we move these teeth using Invisalign, they're going to tend to move in somewhat of a harmonious, symbiotic way, and they're going to work together using Invisalign, the Invisalign product, to be able to close these spaces. Also in the same vein, most of our cases that we're going to be dealing with Invisalign are crowding cases. Probably over 80 to 90 percent of our cases are going to be crowding like this one. So in this case, we also look at like arches. Do we have crowding on the lower and do we have crowding on the upper? And in this case, we do. And also, it does not need to be um, equal crowding. So for example, if we have seven millimeters of crowding on the upper arch, and only two millimeters or one millimeter or no, in fact, millimeters on the lower arch, that is still considered like arches. It doesn't need to be the same. It just simply be, needs to be, in the sense it doesn't need to be the same in the amount of distance or space or crowding. It just needs to be like arches, crowding over crowding or space over space. And that classification alone makes these cases fairly straightforward, even the most complex crowding or space cases. An example of that, because we're all visual, is think of a situation where it's unlike arches. For example, you may have upper crowding 
or maxillary crowding, and mandibular spaces. Well, when those spaces close on the lower arch, it constricts the arch to some degree, whereas the crowding, as I mentioned, would expand the arch. And in that situation, as many of you can probably visualize, you would end up with an overjet, potentially open bite situation. And that can be, again, that can lead to some issues for both the patient, aesthetically or functionally. And you may not have thought about that. So I tend to say that um, arches that are unlike arches, uh, for example, crowding over space or space over crowding, would uh, lead to unlike arches. And they put it immediately into a more intermediate type of case, which I do those every day, and many of you may as well. But just be cognizant of that and be um, respectful of that, or respectful of that, because it's like that it can just make the case a little bit more difficult. So that's the concept of like arches, and it's a great thing to be able to teach your team, too, to look at when they come and uh, talk to you about the exam they want you to, to give the, the patient, is to consider the idea of is it like arches or unlike arches. Now, of course, when it comes to arch form, this may be a little controversial, I, I would say, but I typically, when I see an omega-shaped arch or a V-shaped arch, I really, and with crowding, I typically really love those because it, it tells me that I have a lot of space that's kind of banked in there somewhere. I just need to harvest it and find it to be able to achieve a U-shaped arch. This is what we're going for. So in my opinion, when I have an omega-shaped arch followed by a V-shaped arch followed by a square-shaped arch, all with crowding, which is most of our cases, those are cases I can often do and restore and, and, and move the teeth into a more ideal position, most often not using IPR. In my case, my, my uh, IPR rate is about 3% of my cases. I'm very, um, very frugal when it comes to using IPR. Most of the time, I only use IPR. I'll get into this a little further later. When I'm trying to get rid of uh, black triangles or I'm trying to change the shape of the teeth, if I am trying to change the actual classification, that may on occasion also uh, play a part. But my idea and goal is to try to get to this U-shaped arch form. And with the omega-shaped arch, the V-shaped arch, and the square, I can usually achieve that, and most often without IPR. His teeth want to fit within the arch they were given. We can manipulate the shape of that arch to a bit, but most teeth are dimensionally stable or proportionally stable within the arch they are given. We just need to manipulate them to make them fit. Now, the one area where I do get a little concerned with where I'm going to buy that space is when I have a very crowded case that's already a U-shaped arch, because then I'm thinking, where am I going to buy the space? And in the back of my mind, that typically tells me that I'll probably have to use IPF, but I'll just kind of shelve that for now. I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. So the U-shaped arch is what we're trying to go for. And when I look at a U-shaped arch, there's, there's, very, there's several critical ingredients, most of which everybody will look at the U-shaped typical arch, but then where I really feel like we miss it many times, and Align is a phenomenal, there's very little I can say probably about uh, Align, but the one area that I wish they'd uh, pay a little more attention to is the axial inclination as well as the buccal corridor, which is really defined as the distal half of the canine up to the second molar. That free space in there between basically the heart tissue and the cheeks is where we're able to buy a tremendous amount of space but we don't usually think of that. And I'm going to kind of show how I look at that a little bit differently. But a U-shaped arch is definitely what we're trying to go for. Okay, so that said, for me in my practice, based on the principles I'm going to be teaching today, I primarily look at expansion. Expansion primarily, or pro and a procline as needed, and I always ask for no IPR. Regardless of the case, regardless of whether I know it's going to need it, I always ask for none. The exception to this would be if I see a black triangle, 
between 8 and 9 are the two centrals, I may say I want no IPR anywhere, but I do want to remove that black triangle of you know, 0.3 millimeters, for example, between 8 and 9. And that's something I may say. But generally, no IPR, even in the back of memory, because I want a line to work their tail off to be able to get the arch to follow my mantra, which is the teeth when the arch they are given. And this is what we can do. So it can absolutely be done. It's just a matter of how we, we orchestrate this type of case. And that's what I'm going to show today. So expansion primarily, we want to procline as needed and no IPR. An example of axial inclination is um, where I bring in for my restorative. Is this is an example I just want to show to illustrate this point because it is a pretty significant point. Buckle corridor, as you can see, is also deficient here. I want to talk about this somewhat synonymously, uh, synonymously as I go through all this. But this was a case that had come to me as a relapse, uh, traditional ortho relapse. And you can see there's a midline cant and there's a loss of the corridor. I actually, as an example, uh, submitted this case without any really significant instructions to redesign. And when it came back to me, it came back to me like this. Definitely an improvement, but not quite where we would like to go. So we look at these or compare the two of them together. Would you accept this? Many doctors would accept this. But my issue is that I had several issues with it. For example, the buckle corridor was severely deficient. The axial inclination that oftentimes we see these lateral incisors are diverging, not converging. And when I get to that limit, they should be converging to the mid-body worksite area or the mostly belly button. Here, in this case, they're diverging, same with the canines. And, and uh, this is kind of on both sides, where the corridor division on both sides. Now, what I want you to take from this is when I had submitted this case, it went to 22 aligners and uh, three, millimeter, three millimeters total of IPR. So what I did is I resubmitted this case with a slightly different instruction, which I'm going to show in a moment. But that instruction basically dealt with a different set of concepts. So what I did is I basically had said, please have um, expand primarily, procline as needed, and no IPR. Also pay particular attention to ideal arch form as it pertains, pertains to a buckle corridor. And then lastly, please have the axial inclination convert the max hierarchy converge to the mid-body area. I'm going to show that instruction in a minute, but that simple instruction gave me a completely different end result. So this was the pre-op before we'd ever started in design. And then with that instruction I just gave, this is what I got. When we compare all three of them together, it's a far different scenario. Most of you hopefully will see that there's a difference here between what we started with and what we ended with. And if we bring all of the teeth into, into play, then you can kind of see a completely different situation. So this is what we started with preoperatively. Axial inclination is defined you know, as a line running to the long axis of the tooth is all over the place, which we can imagine from a pre-op. And in our initial clean check with no instructions, it was at 22, mil, uh, 22 aligners and 3 millimeters of IPR. This is what we got as far as the axial inclination. An improvement, but still very much diverging laterals and deficient buckle corridor. <clears throat> this is something we see oftentimes. And then I put that special instruction, which is the worst in just a moment. And this is what I was able to achieve, a far better overall scenario to where we had axial inclination that was converging to the mid-body waistline area. The buckle corridor is more um, uh, fuller. And then just an overall better position of all of the teeth. And this went from 22 aligners, in this case, with 3 millimeters of IPR, down to 19 aligners with no IPR. And I think the most significant thing that you can look at here is when you look at the axial inclination of this particular canine, when this patient starts to go in excursive movements, they're going to get kind of a latent 
um, disclusion of canines. Whereas with a canine nice and tucked in right here, as this is, as soon as this patient goes into immediate disclusion, all of the teeth are going to disclude. This case can potentially lead into a situation where there is group function on one or both sides, plus potentially a posterior appearance that will occur on the second molar. And a lot of dentists don't think about this kind of thing. But if we look at the actual inclination in, in, at, at a slight angle towards the mid-body waistline area, they're going to get immediate disclusion typically. I mean, of course, there are there's exceptions to this, but it's rare that we see them. And so as a result, it's overall a better, more harmonious, and honestly, a better-looking situation. We go from 19 or 22, rather, 22 aligners and 3 millimeters of IPR here with teeth kind of angled all over the place to a more concise, better overall harm, uh, uh, harmony uh, with regard to the, bi the bite as well as the smile. And the exit inclination is converging to the mid-body waistline area, and it goes to 19 aligners and no IPR. Who would not want to be able to do their case without doing IPR if you didn't have to? And this is the exact situation that kind of shows that. Plus, a, a bolt-up, a better um, bubble corridor, which will lead to better and more ideal arch form. So that's what I want you to be able to look at to some degree, is that for most part, most of our uh, uh, movement is going to be through expansion, about 85%. And proclining as needed, but remember, proclining is a tipping or a flaring of the of the teeth, and that should be only as you need it. But it can come at the cost of axial inclination. If you think about it, it will tilt the teeth facially and diverge the axial inclination. That's why I have it in my special instructions. And all of this kind of leads to less than a two or three percent chance of IPR. So that's what I want you to take more than anything with regard to that. Um, the, the other part uh, as we get into this too is the, the with IPR, it can be a very limiting element, um, but it's, it's for, for a lot of dentists, they feel like it's very necessary. And so I want to kind of get into, before I show you the final special instruction and how to write that up, I want to show what my, my thoughts are on IPR. I do feel like it's avoidable most of the time, and that's why only about 2 or 3% of my cases are even needed the IPR. The problem I have with IPR is it can tend to get to a ledge if you use a disc, and sometimes there can just be a lot of damage that can occur if not done properly. So I'd rather be able to do a situation or with a case where I don't necessarily have to um, use IPR uh, if I can avoid it. Now, if I do need to use it, I typically use a 392 bur. This is shown by Axis, but uh, Brass or any of the, the manufacturers will make this, but it's an F392. It's an ultra-fine diamond um, bird that is kind of nice because on the very tip of, of, of the bird, it's at 0.1, and about mid, or it's, it's at about 0.5, which are your typical um, sizes with regard to uh, the IPR that you're doing. Remember, there's always a decimal point that they're going to give you, and they'll never give you more than 0.5 unless you specifically ask for it, which I'll be showing an example of that here in a few moments. But the great thing about this is that if we do need to uh, create IPR situation yeah, with that particular bird, the 392, I'm able to come in usually perpendicular to from the wall and just kind of break through the contact. And I come in through the facial in the same uh, motion. And then I move it towards the um, long axis of the tooth and then just basically kind of create this beautiful end result. And I can do four or five point threes uh, IPRs in, in you know, about 60 seconds with this bird. So it's very safe. It creates a beautiful end result and don't uh, disfigure the teeth at all. Great, again, as I mentioned, I love IPR when it comes to black triangles. You can just simply uh, place an arrow point three in this case or maybe point four. You can cut it the same day you take the impression, or you can do it, of course, the same day you deliver the aligners. Just let the line know what your intention is as far as how much. 
And usually within a few liners, it closes up very nicely, and this works out beautifully. So for black triangles, uh, I do actually really like IPR. The second thing is to change the shape of the teeth, which I'll be sharing an example of that in a bit. But for me, if I do need to take, um, if I do need to to look at the idea of um, uh, creating IPR, I initially ask for for none. But if I do need to place some within, then I, I, I typically request that it is done on the distal of the canines. Um, my reasoning there is that if I ask for that on the distal of the canines, the IPR, then typically the purchase point or the contact point of your, uh, of your teeth is a little easier to adjust if they're distal of the canines. As many of you know, if you've ever had, uh, been called to do 0.5 millimeters on the lower centrals on each tooth down there, it can really have a substantial dimensional or proportional difference or effect on those teeth. So if you take that hit, so to speak, distal of the canines, you can end up getting about three millimeters of IPR reduction on each arch by simply asking for distal of the canines, for example, 0.5 canine to premolar, premolar to premolar, and then premolar to molar. You can even ask if you need it, molar to molar, which would add another millimeter on each side or millimeter total, which would give you a total of four per arch, and I've never had to ask for more than that. But I like to take my IPR hits distal of the canine because it simply elongates the contact, but it doesn't really denature the shape of the tooth, which I appreciate tremendously. That works pretty well. So to bring all of this together, this is more or less my special instruction. As you know, when you fill out either Invisalign Assist, some of you may be using, or Invisalign Full, or Invisalign Express 10 or 5, it doesn't matter, any of these really would work, is this is exactly the uh, instruction that I put in there. And I just simply put this in a Microsoft Word document and then I just copy and paste it into my instructions every, for every single patient, even if I know in the back of my mind it's going to need IPR. But just to go through this to explain and summarize, please expand primarily. I think that makes probably sense to everybody. Proclaim as needed. Remember, proclaiming does come at the cost of axial inclination. So Brooklyn is needed and no IPR. I always want them to try to create the case and follow my mantra of teeth want to fit within the arch they are given. We just, we can manipulate that arch, but let's try to make them stay very close within that box we've confined them to just to make the case go. This will make them use the buccal corridor and axial inclination to their favor. But of course, I'm gonna bring that up. Pay close attention to the buccal corridor when expanding to attempt ideal arch form. Have the maxillary arch axial inclination converge to the patient's mid-body waistline area. Well, I used to give me kind of a bad time because I used to say um, converge to the belly button, and that's exactly where we're trying to go. But the waistline area just gives them an actual converge, uh, converging point of reference. When you are converging anything, you have to have an endpoint. Can you imagine if we said feet? Converge, for example, the teeth to the feet. The teeth would be very up and down. If you see the chest, um, it would be too collapsed and too converging. So the mid body is a nice, subtle halfway point between both of those areas. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, well, we need to know the, then, of course, the, the, the height of the patient. Well, you don't need to know the height of the patient. It's just a basic reference. Everybody has a slightly different axial inclination based on their height and whatnot. But, the idea is just to get a general zone in an area, and there's only a few feet difference between, for example, a seven, 7 man and a 4'11 woman. It's just a general zone that we're trying to converge, but mention, you can't just say just converge. You need to say converge to an end point. That's why I say the mid-body voice sign area. 
This helps me just kind of bring the point to where the canines are, are going to engage initially and immediately and puts you into an overall more harmonious situation. So this right here is worth your price of admission a lot today is this special instruction. The last part is where I ask for the attachment template to occur in a liner two. That's uh, kind of optional, but this is what I, the reason I put this in. I like to be able to give the patient the first aligner just to try out for two weeks. There is movement that's occurring, it's minimal, but it's just kind of getting everything going. Plus it's really just getting the patient acclimated to the whole idea of accepting trays in the mouth. They're wearing 23 hours a day. This then, they come in after two weeks and they say typically, oh yeah, everything's gone really well. I've gotten very used to the trays, everything looks pretty good. And then we say, of course, when they are, we're gonna place the attachments. We've of course explained this to them already uh, prior to this appointment, but I just want them to be aware and they say, oh, yeah, I know, yeah, I remember you telling me. And we put them in. And, of course, from a frictional standpoint, to place the aligners in or remove them is a little bit more difficult when you have all the attachments that we have. But it just gets the patient to step stone a little bit further into the whole acclimation process. And they, they tend to adjust and, and adapt very quickly based on that. So that's why I place that in. Then I will uh, give them two more aligners. So I like to keep everything in threes. So typically what I will do is give them a liner one, have them back two weeks later, and then if everything's going well, I give them two more liners and see them back in a month. And then I give them basically four, five, and six, and then seven, eight, nine, and just continue on down for every six weeks. And let's your accelerating, which I'm going to get into that a bit as well. So hopefully that makes sense um, to, to some degree with regard to what we're able to do with uh, a lot of these cases to, to bring it all into a basic core set of principles it just helps the case go far easier. And this I feel is why I have such a low retention rate of, or I should say um, a refinement rate of uh, less than 15% of my cases because of the fact that I follow these core principles and put that special instruction in. Now, with regard to accelerating, this is a very hot topic right now. And I, uh, you know, of course, the two big ones are probably Propel and Excelda. And, and my issue with Excelda is the fact that the unit cost is so high. I think it's uh, upwards of $800 to $1,000 you have to rely on the patient compliance to be able to create this environment um, to, to be compliant, to, to wear these uh, aligners, to, to vibrate bone, to be able to accelerate these cases. This is why I like Propel. Propel I've done now um, with several hundred cases now with Propel, and I really enjoyed this product because of the fact that it is um, a very simple uh, um, micro osteoperforation system where we basically use this little concept of this uh, little tool here at the lower left side, and it does perforate the bone using usually just a traditional numbing style or uh, even just a strong compound topical. And it creates a, basically an, an acute inflammatory process using the microosteal perforation uh, type of uh, system to create small holes, which of course are very recoverable and the patient has no post-op post uh, discomfort at all. It really um, increases the cytokines production. The remodeling is increased. And it decreases that bone density for about three months. And so you can, as, as a result, accelerate. I accelerate to then seven days versus the 14 days of line. And what this will do is this will then um, let me be able to half the time. So I can, at that point, give, I don't give 12 aligners at one time. I still see the patient every three to four aligners, but now it's now per week versus every per two weeks. And so far with all my cases, knock on wood, I have not had any issues in the acceleration process has been great. Now this is not necessarily something that aligns sanctions or, or um, promotes by any means. 
it's just a lot of us progressive type of dentists that are doing a lot of these uh, type of cases have really enjoyed start to, to accelerate. I don't feel comfortable doing anything faster than per seven days because I do feel like the body needs a little bit of time to recover after the three or four active time, uh, three or four uh, day active uh, movement, the next three days to, to have just passive holding is not such a bad thing. So this concept has worked really nicely. You basically just in place a small perforation. Uh, usually we'll do about three to four on the upper right, same with the upper left, and the same on the lower. The whole process takes me about 10 minutes. I, again, we'll numb either traditionally or I will numb using a very strong uh, compound topical. And again, it's very comfortable to the patient, even though the whole process may seem a little bit daunting and aggressive. It is not by any means. The diameter is a little over a millimeter in, with, in, in which you perforate, and it just creates a very nice little scenario to be able to accelerate these teeth. I typically just place them in the anterior region, as I mentioned, and I have a nice accelerating. I actually charge $650 to, um, to uh, accelerate these cases through relying on top of their feet. And I think the unit cost for me on each one of these is about $115. And so, again, you can get about three months of movement or about 12 aligners um, out of this, and it works beautifully. So it's just a, a nice way to be able to look at what we can do with accelerating some of these cases if you have an interest. Now, with the comment, as I mentioned earlier in my introduction, I love uh, probably about 30 or 40% of the cases that I do with Align are, are in combination with my restorative cases. And so I just want to show a couple of cases of how I set these things up with regard to the restorative uh, element. When I look at doing uh, and moving teeth to a better and more ideal position so that I can be far more conservative and less invasive before I place my restorative, that's my intention. So with Danielle here, um, she's a very uh, minimally invasive, um, very conservative type of case that I did. And what I did is here she was with uh, pre-invisalign, and then just a few months later, she's post-invisalign. The great thing about the combination of restorative cases is I'm not looking for perfect. I'm just looking for close because I'm going to come back in with a restorative and make it perfect. So in her case, what we did is she started off preoperatively with a list of items that we needed to address, some of which she was having issues with, and of course then some I was. And I, the general height and the width of the canines was immense. Her canines, hard to tell from this picture, are almost as wide as they are long. So we had to hide those little undersized lateral incisors. And she had fairly low value uh, lateral incisors, and the genital architecture was all over the place. So I wanted to be able to, for example, intrude or extrude different teeth to be able to get the genital architecture into a better overall position. So using Photoshop, what I did, as you can see, I just extruded, for example, the uh, one, two, or the um, tooth number seven here. And I did the same with uh, tooth number eight or the two one. And I just basically got everything into a better overall, better position so that I could create a better environment for my restorative and be far more conservative. So in doing that, for just a few months with Invisalign, I was able to achieve a lot of, really, the remedy of a lot of my items. I can't change the value of the teeth. That's, of course, where the veneers are coming to play. That we're going to put 10 veneers on that for case. But I was able to be very conservative and minimally invasive. <clears throat> so still using that 392 burr I mentioned earlier for doing IPR, I was able to break the context and, and be able to, to provide a far more conservative situation. Now, going to prep design, even though the scope of this program is not really restorative, I just do want to show you what I'm able to achieve as a result of this. Because I'm able to position the teeth into a better overall position, I'm able to maintain a nice conservative approach to my prep design. This is a nice lingual, standard lingual bevel design that I do with most veneers when I teach courses in veneers also. 
this is the chamfer, which many of you probably have done as well as I have, with the intention of being conservative with a veneer form. But as many of us know, between the, the lingual and facial positioning or thickness of the, of the tooth, you can start to get a little unsupported here. So you end up having to create a situation to where it gets more aggressive and that not intentionally and sort of kind of the uber chamfer where we end up just putting these things in the crowns and we kind of tell ourselves with the veneer. But uh, many of you are probably laughing as you know what I'm talking about. So the idea is to be able to create a more in, um, conservative environment based on the movement of the teeth so that I can maintain a nice level like this and I'm able to achieve that. So in the prep design, that is my goal, is conservative. I love to be conservative. So here's where Daniel was preoperatively and the super imposing using Photoshop. Where's your position is basically, it's great because you can see I am still in the enamel of all these teeth conservative with regard to just scoring the margin. And then I'm just able to wrap it a slightly more bevel. I did use the 392 to break context. I do this a lot of times now by just moving the teeth to a, an open space. And I don't even have to prep the teeth at all. And then I'm able to not even use an anesthetic, just place 10 veneers over the top of it. She does go through a provisional stage, so we don't miss that. But uh, for scope uh, of, of uh, time, I just didn't want to go through that too much. And then nice 10 veneer result. A placement of very conservative and beautiful aesthetics and again conservative non-invasive and really what got me here is the Invisalign the movement of the teeth into a better overall position I'm going to kind of show how I write it. this is another case where the part of the young lady is 27 years old even though she looks far younger than that and what happened with her in her case is that she has been through four years of orthodontics and so this is a situation to where her situation was we needed to move the teeth into a better position overall and then uh, place veneers at the end of it. So just to give you kind of an idea where she started with, she was also congenitally missing lateral incisors. These, the gums are a little red here because we, we uh, seated them on a Wednesday and she got married on a Friday, so we had to take the pictures the same day. But we were able to turn these canines into lateral incisors I would have liked to have intruded the teeth just a little bit more to get a better overall gingival architecture, but I was kind of limited because of timing with her. So it's just to show you what we're able to achieve just in three months of ortho or Invisalign to be able to get to the uh, placement of her veneers in her case. Far more conservative than we're able to keep it conservative. So what I do to write these types of cases up is I will move the teeth to ideal based on the prescription I gave you earlier, but then I also, in addition, We'll say I want a three-degree retrocline position. Of course, I list what teeth I'm going to be preparing for veneers with a 0.1 millimeter diastema. What this does with three-degree retrocline position is it does not invade the envelope of function, which I really love that part of it all because I don't have problems with occlusion. It also gives me about 0.4 to 0.5 millimeters of porcelain on the facial based on this three-degree retrocline position. And all that is achieved through the movement through a line and the Invisalign. So that's what I love about this is it creates this an overall better environment for me so that I can be less invasive with the patient. And they're going to appreciate that, and I appreciate that as well. So this is more or less how it's written up. It's just important that you do mention that it's three-degree retrocline position with 0.1 millimeters or more if needed, depending on the proportions and what teeth you're going to actually be restoring. This can also include full mouth rehabilitation if you're going to open up the vertical dimension of occlusion. It can play a part, too. And then just my final case I want to show you is just a black triangle case, no restorative. This is a woman, ironically, her name is Pandora, which I don't know people actually name their kids Pandora, but she's by Pandy for short. And her situation is that she approached me with the idea of doing something about this black triangle. It's um, 
and this back triangle, Bermuda triangle. I mean, this thing is just a big triangle. She just got the raw end of the deal with regard to the shape of the teeth. Big triangles everywhere. So I told her that uh, she'd been to several consults, and many of those doctors had said that she didn't have to, her teeth crowned. And I said, well, you don't have to have them crowned, but we're going to probably need to put veneers on all of them. And she was very upset. I had to give her a very large treatment plan. And while she's there upset and, and actually crying in my consult room, I started to think, you know, I could potentially do this case with Invisalign. I, I mean, I have some limitation, but I could. And she was very open to talking about it further. So we decided to do both upper and uh, full upper and lower arches, uh, design full and no restorative, and then just me reshaping the teeth to some degree to be able to get a better proportion. So in her case, what we did is after four weeks, we got her back, and then we created these black triangles. Or I'm sorry, using IPR, we created these large spaces. So she really is essentially a space case, and she's like arches because she has black triangles on the bottom as well as the upper. She's just this the swamp between that uh, and nine is tremendously large. And so we initially ordered for two phases, so I asked for 2.5 millimeters the first time. In this case, again, we used a 392 burr. My joke about this one is I could probably use any of these burrs for this case, but this is uh, typically what I'll use in the 392. And then we simply break through contact in several spots. In this case, I needed 2.5 millimeters. She ended up having about seven, I think, seven and a half millimeters of IPR all across the upper arch. At seven months, this is what she was. I knew we weren't done. I had minimal contouring of the teeth, but I went to a second phase, or refinement number one, and added two more millimeters to her particular case, and she was thrilled where she was at this point, and then I just did a little bit more contouring. Now, at this point, what I do with all of my patients, when they're nearing the end of a design, or if they're choosing a smile with regard to porcelain I'm doing, I, um, some years ago, I created this concept of what I call the platinum paradigm. And it's a lot of what I've actually talked about today, and I've had it published in multiple uh, periodicals and, and peer-reviewed um, journals. It's this idea of kind of looking at what creates ideal smiles. And in 2003, I created the original platinum paradigm. And in 2008, the platinum paradigm two, which is just more of an Americanized version. These uh, deal with less ideal of scenarios, I and mean, this one is a standalone book uh, on more ideal type of smiles. And I take pages from those books and let the patients that have look and understand where we want to go with a smile, both in restorative and just in design. And having some of the concepts that we talked about today and then some we haven't, but understanding line angles, this is great education for doctors as well as um, as well as uh, uh, patients and also your laboratory. So if anybody's interested in getting a copy of this, you can just email me at the end of the program too. I'd be happy to help you with that. But these are the type of items that help you understand just what creates beauty and teeth, both from an aesthetic standpoint as well as a functional standpoint. The posture and such, all different elements to just kind of explain what creates these ideal smiles. We talked about the black triangles as well as buccal cord or axial inclination, and this uh, deals and addresses those um, to where a nice full arch just gives you a full smile based on, um, you can see the differences here, but even six years is what I try to avoid because it tends to really blow out your, um, your ductal corridor. So it's just this type of manual that helps with understanding. And we do get our patients somewhat educated in this area because it does help them understand their smile and it keeps them kind of vested in the decisions that are being made. Now, what's kind of interesting is how many people think that there's actually a difference between male and female teeth? Most people will say there is. Well, ironically, there is not. Other than women's teeth are typically about 0.2 millimeter 
longer canines than males, but generally there is no difference. But there is a difference. Society has created a difference and it created a more feminine type of smile with larger, for example, incisional abrasures, a slight step up of the lateral incisor versus the central incisor, sharp, long canines, and it just tends to lend to a more feminine smile. Conversely, men's smiles tend to be, as far as what creates a masculine smile, is more of a, a squared off type of look that you see here. And this idea and this concept that uh, you know, it's more aggressive, I'd not say that we don't do these same type of teeth on, uh, on females and vice versa, but it's typically some sort of idea. So it doesn't exist, but we as a society have kind of created a difference between male and female teeth, which I think is interesting. My, uh, my manual kind of plays into that a bit. So what Pandy did is she chooses what smile that she wants from my manual, and this is where she started, and then this is where she ends. So significant difference in improvement, I would say, overall. Much, much better. I was able to shorten the teeth to some degree, but then I started to hit Denton. She was happy with where we were, so I didn't really press it any further, but we had certainly come a long way in better proportions of, of, of the teeth, and all done with Invisalign, no restorative here whatsoever. Again, I probably would have shortened the teeth a little bit, and with this type of technique, it does tend to elongate the context just a little bit, but generally a far better serial and a very happy patient. She ends up being one of our, our best referrals even to this day. Uh, so it's just a great way that we can be able to look kind of at the diamond in the rough, so to speak, with regard to how we address these cases, and um, we can always be conservative. Now, I often get asked on retention, and my style of retention is a little different than maybe what you've heard about before with regard to how other instructors have uh, suggested uh, this type of thing, but mine is a little bit more conservative and not quite as long in, in the overall retention style. And what I mean by that is if we've known that the patient has worn the final tray for the last two weeks, they will then come in and we will assess where they are. I typically then will give them my manual and they'll, uh, or some pages out of it and we'll just uh, print some pages uh, or copy them. And they'll just try to decide, uh, not at that moment, but just over the next two weeks, basically what their thought process is on the type of smile they would like to have. And so they'll come back two weeks later, and at that point, we will assess where we are, make sure the bone is stable, make sure the bite is stable, the aesthetics are there, and we will then contour and remove attachments. We'll take impressions for our Vivera, uh, which I would strongly recommend that you do. We also include the price of our Vivera in our overall price for ortho. So that tends to keep the patients from opting you know, out of, uh, of retention, which I don't think they should be. Then we have them back about three weeks or so. Two to three weeks later, we get our, our trays, our liners. We tell them, and this is probably the hardest thing, but we tell them they need to go with their Rivera upper lowers for one month, 23 hours a day. And here they have the attachments removed, their teeth are contoured now, they love the way they look and they want to show them off, but this is a critical part to get the bone to stabilize. And then after one month, we tell them they can more or less wear them, they'll need to wear these liners forever. This gives us about three months of passive retention. Some people have said as much as six months. I don't think that is necessarily uh, needed, uh, but it, certainly six months can't hurt you, but I think it's a little longer than you need to. And then we just do tell them they need, they need to wear it forever. But this type of retention system overall setup really works very, very well. And the patients have been uh, very happy with the uh, end result. And knock on wood, I haven't had any uh, cases I know of that have any relapse. So that's more or less the retention type of element uh, there. To summarize, as we go through all of this as a final idea, I want to just kind of go uh, through some of these, these elements once again, 
as we uh, discussed initially, we have the concept of black arches where we have crowding over crowding or space over space. It's just important to classify what they are because, again, if you have four millimeters of crowding on the upper and zero millimeters of crowding on the lower, that's still like arches. But as soon as it goes to the opposite, for example, two millimeters of space on the lower and four millimeters of crowding on the upper, then that is unlike arches and that tends to lead to a little bit more of a complexity with regard to how you address these cases. Then we go to um, arch form, we look at, obviously we're trying to look for a U-shaped ideal arch form and that's critical because that is where we'll be able to maintain good buckle corridor, excellent inclination, and typically fall to my mantra of teeth want to fit when the arch they were given. If we can move towards that U-shaped arch form, we're able to really get uh, great utilization of the space that's there and usually eliminate your IPR. Then I will avail, evaluate the buckle corridor as we had discussed because that is where a lot of space is lost and um, we're able to harvest a tremendous amount of space there. That kind of follows in within the axial inclination as well and how that plays a part into it. As you can imagine, if the axial inclination is very severe towards the chest, for example, it's going to then make the case look collapsed and you're going to lose your buckle corridor. So they are definitely interrelated. I expand primarily procline as needed and no IPR. I always ask for that even if I know it's going to end up needing IPR at the end I'll deal with that in the subsequent clear checks, but initially I want them to try to work this case with no IPR. I also look at my restorative very carefully. I, if I have old person used the metal crowns, I try to get the patient to understand the body and maybe replacing those, but I have a concept called need-based versus want-based dentistry. Need-based dentistry are abscesses, periodontal disease, broken teeth, um, cavities, whatever it might be. Those are that's dentistry that you need to do before you start in this line. But want-based dentistry are the old porcelain fused to metal that are on uh, the two central incisors. I will tend to try to get, honestly, paid up front for those, but at the end of treatment of Invisalign, I would then go back and finish those cases uh, with, with our new restorative because a lot of times you can actually use um, Invisalign to, to minimize the invasiveness of your restorative, which is a nice way to look at it too. I don't show, I didn't get into this uh, yet, but I don't show clean checks to patients. My main reason for that is the fact that I think you're introducing variables that they are just not equipped to understand. When we show a patient a clean check, we're essentially, in my opinion, force feeding them eight years of college into 10 minutes. And typically the patient is just not equipped to be able to handle that kind of intense education. And an example of this, I used to show initially a lot of my clin checks to patients. And they, I could have been maybe through four or five different clin checks to get this case really where I wanted it. And I was so proud of it. I'd bring the patient in to show them. They had teeth that were so bad, it would poke their spouse in the eye, I mean, before they came up to them. It was terrible, terrible type of uh, situations. And I'd look at it proudly as I'd watch the clin check condense. And they'd look at it and they'd go, wow, that's a significant difference. And here I was kind of patting myself on the back and proud of myself. And then they'd say, but look at the midlines. The midlines aren't, you know, basically they're saying the midlines aren't coinciding. And I'd say, well, there's a skeletal shift there. And if I do try to align with the midline, I could look at another year uh, of treatment. And it's just not necessary because nobody walks around with their teeth fully articulated. That's just how a quick shows. And they'd look at me and they'd go, wow, it is significant when you did that, but it really bothers me that the midlines aren't straight. I mean, and then they'd start questioning how many cases I did and whether I knew what I was doing because my midlines weren't coinciding. 
So I just realized that less is more, and ClinChecks are not something that typically I show patients because it just confuses them. So I use the uh, patient portfolio, which is a, a great downloadable program off of the website that you can that has, I believe, 16 smiles that show uh, before and afters, it shows ClinChecks, and you just pull somebody off of that list that, that emulates the patient that's, that you've got in the chair, and you can kind of show them an idea of what their case will be using that patient portfolio. So look at that. Uh, it's a free uh, part of software the line will, will provide for you or talk to your territory managers about that. I don't want to get into these as much, but the lip posture, of course, I want based on where the teeth are. The emergency profile of the teeth is essential, but if you're following ideal arch form, it's not usually an issue. Gingival height and zenith can be done both with a laser potentially or just the movement of the teeth. But obviously, we want the height and the zenith of the central and the canine to be about the same, whereas the lateral incisor will be slightly incisal to that by about a half a millimeter, two millimeter. These are just nice soft tissue um, uh, part of your roadmap, so to speak, um, to, to create this beautiful end result. And then uh, enamel contouring, there is almost not a case I don't ever contour just a bit, just to kind of even things out. And it really can make the difference between an A minus smile and an A plus smile, just that contouring. And then lastly is open-ended questions. I don't ask questions like, uh, hey, David, do you like uh, your smile? Because they typically will say, um, yeah, yeah, I'm good with it. Where do you go with that? There's nowhere to really go with that. I typically like open-ended questions where I would say, David, here's a mirror. I want you to give me a big smile. And I want you to tell me what you would change about it. Everybody has something they would do differently with their smile. You tell me what yours is. And I kind of lead them with that. And then what he'll do is 100% of the time they will say, well, I wish you know, I had braces all those years ago, and I wish this one tooth was a little longer. I wish it was a little rotated. And I like the slight space between my two front teeth. They're, they're too yellow, whatever it might be. And then you can address that, whether it's with Invisalign, restorative, or otherwise. There are a number of things you can do, but you have to ask open-ended questions. So that's kind of where I want to end with regard to how I get patients kind of excited about the idea of Invisalign and potentially veneers or other restorative work too. And it creates a great overall environment for them. So Invisalign, if you haven't uh, done a lot of it, it's this incredible product that really can go a long way. And I, I initially got in because of the fact that I wasn't so much interested in, in having an Invisalign ortho practice as much as I, I was in that I could be a creative more conservative element to my restorative part of my practice, and now I've been able to achieve both. Um, and I would urge you to, to, to look at this and, and really foster this type of um, idea because with regard to, there's only a few things in dentistry over the last 18 years I can say have been game changers in the line. Uh, digital radiography, I'd say, would be, imaging would be the other thing, but uh, line has really turned ortho around and put, it turned it on its ear. And, um, and I love the fact that we're able to now as GPs do this type of product, which I would never even thought would be possible for a GP to do uh, years ago. So here's my email address. I'd be happy to help anybody with any um, any cases they may have. And I open this up to, to anybody to uh, for, for additional help. And if David, you haven't fallen asleep over there, I'd love to have you jump back on the out there. Dr. Smallwood, I want to thank you one more time for a wonderful presentation. A quick Good reminder, you. if you um, need to see credits, please go to uh, the link that's on the screen right now to obtain your CE certificate. Also remember that this uh, entire presentation will be archived one week from today on the uh, on your IDS page. Again, I want to thank Dr. Smallwood for a great pre presentation and for all of you for joining us today on the call. Have a great day.